I'm Brock Gordon, and I'm an art teacher at Fusion Academy in the Woodlands, Texas. I work with a group of fantastic teachers, and this summer I'm catching up with them on their ideas on education. This is Summer League. to know Samantha Craig a little bit and her history. And in part two, she's going to tell us a little bit about cross-curricular reading. So I'm here with Samantha Craig, and she teaches English and history and life skills and a whole myriad of things. And you've been here a whole year by now, and you really made a big impact on our school. Um, so welcome, Samantha. Thank you so much for sitting down with me today. So if you would, please just tell us a little bit about you. How did you end up here in the Woodlands at Fusion Academy and just a little bit of background? Uh, absolutely. So do you want the long version or the short oh. version? <laughs> you know, give us the long version. Oh, all right. So I was born in Dallas and we moved to a small town called Bartlett, Texas when I was a year and a half to two years old. And we, I basically grew up there. I went to high school there. Super small town, more cows than people. <laughs> so that sounds like New Zealand where they say there's literally more sheep than people there. Is it like that? Is it like super rural? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, to give you just kind of a background on me when I was, I graduated with 32 people in my class. Oh my gosh. Um, and I was president of the FFA chapter for two years. Very so, cool. very, very rural. Um, it was a very interesting experience growing up there. Uh, I went to college at Texas A&M University in College Station, graduated in three years, uh, moved back to Bartlett, floundered for a little while, found my niche in teaching, and um, I also did some volunteer work on the side as an EMT and firefighter with my local volunteer fire department. And I moved here to the Woodlands about a year ago after I got married to my husband. And I've loved this area ever since. Great. So what was your first job? My first like career job or my first um, job? How about your first paying job Ooh. and then your first career job? First paying job, I worked as, I worked in basically a fast food place. Okay. Uh, there was a little independently owned place in Bartlett called the Burger Barn. And I worked there the summer between my junior and senior year. It's sad to say, maybe for two or three months. Um, but I was really, I was really busy. I was very involved with our FFA chapter. I was a district officer for FFA. Um, I had animals that I was raising. I just, I was busy and they didn't like that I had to take off all the time because I was so busy. And I just said, you know, I'm not serving you guys. The paycheck is nice, but it's going to be better if you can hire somebody else that's yeah. not so busy. <laughs> right. How about your first career job? Ooh, this is a good one. Okay. So after I graduated from A&M, I moved back to my hometown. And that's kind of where I got my teaching start as I was a substitute teacher. And they called me in for an interview one summer for the position of an after-school program director, site coordinator type of thing it's through the um it's called the ace program it's through the 21st century community learning centers i don't i don't remember the exact acronyms it's been a while um but they needed a full-time person to run their after school program so there i am 23 years old and i was put 
in charge of a $150,000 federal grant. Whoa. <laughs> it's a lot of dough. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was a big responsibility. Um, and unfortunately, that did not work out Um for several reasons, the main one I'm attributing is the fact that I had zero experience. Yeah. Uh, some things I did, I was able to do really well. Some things not so great. So I was able to move on. I went back into substitute teaching and the next school year I took a job as a full-time English teacher at Shoemaker High School in Colleen. That's great. I imagine you would be a really, like, cool substitute teacher. And I remember my own education was peppered with these cool substitute teachers. Every Like, they have distinct personalities. I remember one in particular who, he just embodied what you think of as a sub. And he, like, had these... Uh, silly jokes that he would tell that if a normal teacher told them would not land. But because he was a sub and he was just there for one day and he could like insert his weird personality into the class, it totally worked. And he just killed it. If the sub plan was to like watch a video before pressing play on the video, he would say, Meanwhile, back on the ranch and press play. And for some, like, that's so stupid. But, like, as a sub, and you, uh, and you can do that to a group of strangers, the kids love them, you know? So I imagine you would be able to, like, kind of perform well as a sub. I was 100% that person. Okay. <laughs> uh, one of my fondest memories is I was subbing in a, I guess it was a U.S. history class. And this was back many, many years ago. And the kids love to throw paper balls at each other. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, that's fine. You want to do this? Let's go. We're going to reenact a battle. Whoa. And there were so many paper balls. <laughs> so many paper balls. But it was fun. It was fun. I was always very cognizant of where they were as students. And I wanted to make sure that while I was in the room, school didn't suck. Right. Because it sucks for so many, so much of the time. It does. It does. When you think of the American education system, um, and you think of the amount of kids there are in the class, and you think of the individual attention that um, some of them are receiving, and the other half are not receiving. And you, I wonder how many kids go to school every day and never make any connection with a teacher all day. They're just in the sea of, you know, other students who are either getting it and quiet or just making it look like they're getting it. You know, that is a majority of why I left public school is because I saw those kids. And no matter how many times I tried, there were always kids that I wasn't able to connect with because I had crazy children standing on a desk in the middle of my classroom trying to hide a dictionary in the ceiling tiles. That actually happened. (laughs) That actually happened. When did you think that you would be a great teacher? Was it when you were actually in school? Was it as you were kind of out of school and, you know, trying out these different things? When did you first have that inkling that I'm going to be, I might be a teacher? Oh, so I was that that really smart, nerdy, brainy kid in high school. I was also kind of a jerk. (laughs) And I was the one who said, over my dead body, will I ever be a teacher? There's no way in hell I'm ever going into the classroom. That's for losers. Right. Oh, if Uh, I could talk to 15 years ago, Sam, the things I would tell her. I kind of got an inkling 
when I was, I guess it would have to be when I started subbing for that very first time. Um, I saw it as I just, at that point, I needed a job. I was living with my parents. I was out of college um, and I was just completely floundering. I had no idea what I wanted to do when I grew up. Um, I had made some choices in college that had hindered and maybe prevented some of my plans because, you know, when you're 18, you know everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, I had to deal with the consequences of those decisions, which included a very low <laughs> GPA. Right. So graduate school was out of the question and I just I needed I needed a job. And my mom saw something in me and said, go substitute at the high school go just go what do you have to lose it's it's money so sometimes mothers and fathers know best or they know something about their kid that you don't quite pick up on yet i can't believe i'm saying this for it to be recorded and put out into space forever but they were right 100 (laughs) percent Um, but both my mom and my dad were, were right. But um, so I started subbing. My very first time getting called to be a sub was for an elementary school PE class. And it was with that I knew I was never meant to teach elementary school. <laughs> so it was a blessing. It was a it blessing. It gave you some information. It did. It did. Um It was the most chaotic thing I've ever experienced in my life. And which is funny because I live in chaos. I thrive in chaos. But even I have limits. (laughs) And that was horrible. But the next day I got called in for um, to sub in in a high school high school history class. And it was a world history class. And I loved it. And it was so much fun. And the high school just kept calling me back. And eventually they hired me on as a long-term sub for a um, coach who had to have surgery. And this was back in the days of tax. Mm -hmm. And this was 11th grade. And they had a tax, the US history tax test. And my, out of all of my kids that took it, I had one fail which was completely unheard of. Hmm. And it was when I got those results, I was like, you know, maybe I'm not terrible at this. And so I signed up for an alternative certification program and thus it began. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have anybody that you modeled your teaching or coaching style on when you were in high school? Looking back on it, Probably the one that I have taken the most from as far as my teaching style would have been my uh, pre-AP geography teacher, Miss Jennifer Spiegelhauer. She was she she pushed and but she wasn't a hard ass, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, She pushed. She knew what we were capable of. it also helped that she was one of my best friend's moms. Okay. <laughs> um, I was a sophomore taking that class and a sea of freshmen. But I learned so much from her. And I still use some of the things that she taught me in geography when I teach my geography classes here at Fusion. Um, I had her when I was in the fourth grade. And that, like, we just didn't click at that time. Um, I actually got moved out of her class. But when I had her in high school, it was like night and day. She just she was a brilliant teacher. She's still a teacher to this day. Um, I messaged her on Facebook a couple months ago and said, hey, I recognize what you've done. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I was just having this conversation with another teacher here about social studies and history teachers and God bless a good history teacher (laughs) in high school. Not everybody likes that class. Mm -hmm. Um, Just like any class, not everybody is warmed up to it. But I remember my world history teacher 
and she had no resources. She just had a sheet of paper that had bullet points of whatever she was kind of talking about. And she was sitting on her desk and it was story time for two hours every day. Wow. And I what well, I just fell in love with history. Wow. I was so into it. And before that, you know, like it just totally matters if you can convey information mm-hmm. in an interesting way or not. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's not gonna hit nobody's nobody's learning history. It's funny you mentioned that. World history for me. So my schedule was kind of wacky when I was in high school because, again, we're a really small high school. And I was in some advanced math classes. Um, So my schedule was different than all the other freshmen. I actually took world history as a freshman. And my world history class was horrible. Oh, no. Um. Sometimes assignments were to copy pages out of the book. Like copy the text just word for word? Yes. Out of the book? That is horrible. Yes. <laughs> yes. There was, and, and I distinctly remember this, um, there was a six weeks that I turned nothing in. Nothing at all. And I got a 95 in that class. <laughs> I always wondered how that worked. That's so magical. It was. It was so magical. <laughs> um, so that kind of leads me to this question, which is, what are the differences between that experience that you had in high school and how you intentionally teach today? I would be remiss if I did not mention I had an amazing mentor teacher when I was first starting out. Miss um, Lisa Hightower taught me nearly everything I know about education. Um, she teaches in Florida now, and I'm super jealous because I see her pictures of reading on the beach, which is literally like oh, brother. a five-minute <laughs> drive from her house. And I'm like, this... Ugh. Ugh. What does she but, teach? So she was also a sophomore English teacher. Okay. And we literally taught the same class. And I would spend my lunches with her. I would spend my planning periods with her. And she taught me she taught me how to love kids that looked unlovable. And she just taught me how to make them work harder than you do. And don't reinvent the wheel Mm. and for me just those lessons i learned from her that first year um they were i i wouldn't be where i am without that so make them work harder than you do can you talk about that a little bit oh 100 this is one of my favorite um strategies to use in a classroom so The idea of learning is that students have to work. I cannot, it's it's an active process. I can sit and talk to you, but are you really retaining the information? Are you practicing the skills? No, probably not. So you're gonna be writing, you're gonna be reading. Um, When I was in public school, you could read with an elbow partner and here at Fusion, you're reading to me Mm -hmm. and I will read back to you. But you've got to like make them just leave your class exhausted, mentally exhausted. There's no reason that a teacher should have to be so tired just from teaching the content. And that's the idea of making them work harder than you do. Make the kids work. Make them read. Make them write. Make them do everything. They are going to produce more work in your class than you are ever going to be able to grade. And that's okay. You've just got to learn to sift through it and pick what you're going to (laughs) grade. That's a good rule. Mm Mm-hmm. That way you can sift through. And if you see a qual when like you're going to know, like, okay, I'm not going to grade these, but I do definitely want to grade this. So you're going to like you're going to push a little harder for quality, but they're still going to have all of this practice and you're not going to learn to read. You're not going to learn to write. You're not going to learn to paint. You're not going to learn to do anything without practice. Right. 
Yeah. That's the the kind of growth mindset stuff that you have to have in an English class for sure. Mm-hmm. And that I just see in art all the time mm-hmm. is that students come in and say, I can't draw. I'm not an artist. Um, and I say, you know what? No kidding. Uh, who cares? <laughs> Nobody is an art. You're pra- we're practicing art. Yeah. We're practicing how to create things. Mm-hmm. Um, and the goal is not to make art necessarily. The goal is practice and play mm-hmm. and create. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's it. What's an assignment that you give that you've really seen tremendous growth? Do you have a project that that overall is one of your favorites? That's hard to say because honestly, I don't know that I've ever given the same project twice, mm-hmm. um, especially here at Fusion, because every one of these kids is so different and they all have different preferred methods of learning. They all have uh, different personalities. And so I actually have them tell me what they would like to do. Like, how would you like to display what you've learned here? Um, I have several students who have like, oh, I wanna create a diorama of this. Cool, How? what are you gonna have in the diorama? Well, I'm gonna have this, 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 and this, because this is part of the physical geography of this region, and I'm like, There we go. We got it. (laughs) I think my favorite project that I've done, though, is this was a review for Texas government. And you got to help me for this one. All right. And it was so fun. Um, I have a student who is seventh grade, and she's very shy, very quiet, and very wise beyond her years. And if she had the choice, she would sit in a corner and just observe. Well, part of the motto of my classroom is that we are a risk-taking people and comfort zones do not exist. Because if they do, I'm going to drop kick them. I'm going to Spartan kick your little hiney out of your comfort zone. As far as in the classroom, I'm always willing to try something new. We're always trying something new. And I've noticed that making the students a partner in that helps. Um, it helps in that risk taking and that very, very much that growth mindset. Yeah. But back to the project, sorry. <laughs> Woo! Um, I created a scavenger hunt for this student. And I had almost every teacher on campus and some of the students help out with this. And she had to answer the questions right in order to get the next clue. And she was up and walking around and talking to people. And for me, that project was less about her knowledge of the Texas government and more about her skills of being able to critically think communicate with others and trust her instincts 100%. It was a really cool project. Yes. I had to pretend to be Texas Governor Greg Abbott and he doesn't have an accent but for whatever reason I gave him like an old kind of stereotypical Texas accent Mm. what, what I would think of as a Texas accent and it was so much fun. I'm really glad you said risk taking and I think that is something that we encourage as teachers, but that we also have to heed our own advice and take risks on projects like that. And they don't all work out. Sometimes they fail so hard. Epically fail. Epic fail. Oh my goodness. And you say, you know what? That's okay too. We'll change this around. We'll improvise and differentiate it in some way for the student but risk taking is really important just for you personally you know whether it succeeds or fails just to kind of keep you on your toes and engaged and interested and that's one of the really cool things about this school that I don't think I could really do in another school is take all the risk I want to, and I have a long commute up here, mm-hmm. and I could come up with an idea for a project that um, I want to do with a student on the way here, mm-hmm. and say, you know what, I have we have this on the assignment today, 
but I think we're going to do something totally different because um, this is really important to us now. You know, I think oh, the yeah. students really feed off of that kind of energy too. 100%. And need that. If they're coming from a school where they're just getting lost, that really makes them feel kind of important that you're thinking about them mm-hmm. outside of school, that you're like considering options for what to do in class. 100%. 100%. I sometimes an idea for a project will come to me as I'm sitting there face to face with a student. And mm-hmm. I will just look at the student and get like this crazy look on my face and I'm like, <laughs> I have the best idea ever. And they look at me like I have three heads, which is fine. Yeah. I don't mind. Yeah. And Usually they'll be like, okay, what what's your idea? And I'm like, let's do this, 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 and this. And they just kind of look at me and say, okay, okay, why? Well, these are the things we have to cover in class. And wouldn't this project be amazing to cover all of these things? They can, I mean, but they just feed off of that. They do. You know, even if they're not quite on board initially when mm-hmm. you say that. It at least gets them to buy in mm-hmm. and it, it kind of raises the stakes to a point where they have to meet you somewhere with exactly that, that range exactly and maybe it doesn't maybe it doesn't meet your expectation of what they're willing to buy into mm-hmm. but it pushes the bar 100 100 they i've they love having input on what they do for the projects and um I love the flexibility that I have here of being able to be like, okay, scrap the lesson plan, buckle in, because this is what we're working on today, and just kind of roll with it. And it's just the coolest thing of having that freedom. Um, I will admit that part of my struggle when I was in public school is I didn't have the flexibility for all the creativity. You know, I had to have lesson plans. I had to stick to the lesson plans. Um, If what I was teaching was when a administrator of whatever caliber walked in, wasn't on the lesson plan that I was teaching, like there were risks there. Like I could definitely get chastised for it. And something I very much value is creative freedom and teaching them, teaching risk taking. Uh, one of my favorite lines is, well, what do you have to lose? Yeah. I hear from so many of our teachers, if we're in uh, professional development sometimes, oh, I'm not creative. I'm not this, that, and the other. I'm like, if you are in this building teaching, you're a creative, just oh, yeah. being here, being a teacher here, mm-hmm. um, because you're forced to. Oh, absolutely. And you have to <laughs> adapt to all these different types of students. Absolutely. You know, that's one of my favorite lines. What do you have to lose? Seriously, what is the worst thing that could go wrong if this lesson flops? Um, I had a really great mentoring moment with one of my mentor students who you have mentored some for me as well. He's a very gifted artist. Uh Uh-huh. I know him. And he was taking a very high stakes test for his English class. Um, this was when he was tra- making the transition from here to from public school to here. And he kept being he was very high anxiety about what happened. What, what if I fail this test? What if I fail this test? And I got to the point where I just looked at him and I said, what if you do? What is the worst thing that is going to happen to you if you fail this test? Yeah. And he stopped and he thought. And he said, I don't know. And I said, do you know what the worst thing that's going to happen is? You will have wasted $50 on a test. That is literally the worst thing that is ever going to happen for you failing that test. Right. No! No! I told him, I said, honey, when you get to be my age, you will have wasted $50 on much dumber things. Yeah. (laughs) Don't even worry about it. That's right. It's okay. And so I I just, I use that a lot with all of my students. You know, hey, let's try this. What do we have to lose? Why not? Go for it. Um, Because I want them to know that this is a safe place to fail. And that's, yes. So could you talk a little bit about 
the differences between teaching here versus teaching public school. I had never, never in my wildest dreams did I think I would ever find a school that aligned with my core values so well. And that where I was able to also help a student with their social and emotional education as well. Um, part of my public school experience was I was kind of a mom on campus for a lot of kids, which is weird because I'm not old enough <laughs> to be anyone's mom. Well, I mean, I could be. I'm 30. It's fine. But they just they came to me because they needed that figure to listen to and vent to and to give them advice because if a kid needed help, they wanted me to send them to the counselor. All right, cool. You don't want me to mentor. You don't want you don't want me to do anything like that. Fine. Mm. Yeah, that's got to be really disheartening. It, that was probably the lowest point of my career right there was just being told that my mentorship was not wanted. So thankfully, we have a role here that's the the teacher mentor part where we do get to kind of connect with kids and um, maybe coach them through some difficult times. A lot of the times um, over the, the time that I've been here, you come to class and there is an obvious student in your room that is not ready to learn because there's something going on. And you get to uh, you get to coach them through that in one way or another by either just listening and just validation and uh, being in your feelings when you're that age is everything because mm-hmm. you feel like feelings run your world and your emotions are so connected to how you see the world and as you get older oh yeah you you can control it a little better and mm-hmm. you have a separation you're like oh, I'm just having this feeling it's mm-hmm. cool though <laughs> just... adolescent brain is funny man yeah <laughs> so um, I have one more question for you and then we'll take a break cool um, and my question is have you ever had to compromise your own um, time and of <laughs> the question is, is like of course <laughs> but have you how have you had to compromise yourself to become a better teacher so for me that word compromise kind of has a, a negative a very negative connotation because when I think of compromise I think of something that I don't necessarily want to do um, I don't think I've had to quote unquote compromise. Have I changed and have I changed things about myself to become a better teacher? 100%. Um, probably the middle of my teaching career, I noticed that I was getting really burnt out. I needed someone to talk to. I went and started seeing a therapist. Okay, not only do all people need therapists, oh my all gosh. teachers really need therapists. Don't we? Oh my goodness. <laughs> yes. I think that's a really great way of looking at it. And compromise does have a kind of negative connotation. And what it sounds like is that the positives, you know, whatever negatives have been far outweighed by the positives mm-hmm. of what you gained from being a teacher. I look at it as life as a journey, okay? Um, I have been hiking on this trail for 30 years. Um, I have fallen and broken some bones, figurative, figuratively broken bones. Um, I've broken some literal bones. Um, I've made some wrong turns and ended up in a quicksand swamp. I've made some right turns and ended up in the most beautiful meadow you've ever seen in your life. But it's all part of that journey. And I would never have been able to reach those meadows if I hadn't gotten stuck in the swamps. You don't know, and I don't remember who says this, and I'm doing a very a huge disservice right now, but you don't know, it's my belief that you don't know true joy until you've experienced true sorrow. Same with career. You don't know true 
career satisfaction until you've experienced true career letdown, true, just true work. You don't, you don't know that you're working in the clouds in a beautiful palace until you have literally worked in a swamp. Right. And that's just the way I see it. Um, This journey has been amazing and awful and wonderful. Um, I know you've heard me say at lunch sometimes, oh, what a long, strange trip it's been. And that rings true, you know, Um, but I'm here to help people on their own long, strange trips. And I don't plan on changing who I am unless it's for the better. That's awesome. Thank you. So we're going to take a short break and come back to talk to Sam about cross-curricular reading in the classroom. So we'll be right back. Samantha, um, and we're here to talk about cross-curricular reading in your classes. So tell me a little about what were you thinking? So most of this is I just want to emphasize the importance of kids reading. Um, You know, I've gotten pushback from all... um, all areas of teachers say no like reading is not applicable in my class um i've had i've had art teachers tell me that i've had shame on them i know um i've had math teachers tell me that i've had science teachers tell me that but what i want to talk about is just how easy it is to incorporate something like that into your curriculum um I have all of my students read life skills. I have my life skills kids read. I have my history students read. I have my English students read, obviously. Um, They do a little more reading than the others, but everyone reads because it's so important and it's such an important skill to master. I agree. (laughs) Um, And as you were saying that, uh, I thought of the student that we were mentioning earlier and art and I just it popped in my brain a book that I have to give you to give maybe an excerpt um, for him to read Uh, and the book is called Art and Fear and it is this whole book about the psychology of making art and it just I remember reading it in undergrad and just it just being this whole oh my gosh I didn't even realize I was thinking like that um, about how fear just gets in our way of actual of being free to create, um, but it's applicable to just about anything. Reading should be a part of just about every single class. Um, it gives so much more context. Mm-hmm. It creates connections, which mm-hmm. is seems to be one of the most important things. Is that if you can, if you're teaching something and you can connect it to something that they either already know or something that they're learning in another class that increases the probability that they're gonna retain the information in the first place. Uh-huh. So I'm for what you're talking about. Yes. So it's so, I read a book and I'm almost ashamed to say it's taken me until now to read it, but I think I'm in the perfect place now to execute some of the ideas. This book is called Read Aside, How Schools Are Killing Reading and What We Can Do to Stop It. And it's by an an educator named Kelly Gallagher. Um, He's still an active educator. Um, Some people might have heard of him because he does articles of the week as well, and he publishes them on his website. And all he's done is he's taken an article from a news source and smushed it kind of into a readable format for the students 
and he, you have to they have to do one every week and I've actually taken that and I'm currently working on an article of the week library for our history classes as well um, I would love to be able to do that for science um, if you would like to partner with that for art I'm all over it because I am so passionate about getting literature into students' hands. I very much believe that if you hate reading, you haven't found the right thing to read yet. And it goes back into my ideas of risk taking. Like, what do you have to lose? Try it. If you love it, cool. If you don't, cool. Yeah. So you and two of our other teachers spearheaded this project at our school to we're we're a very small school who we didn't have a built-in library per se and you guys really took it upon yourselves to create a library filled with books of you know the the whole process included like choosing what books to have finding the books uh, at a good price um, getting the school to build this whole resource library and organize it in a easy to navigate um, system. I was thinking actually the other day about how as and the library is something that like is going to continue to develop. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we're working <laughs> on getting a budget for it for next year as well. Nice. Because we just want to keep expanding it. Our goal was to have it doubled by the time uh, August rolled around. And it's one and a half times the size that it once was. Or like it's it's doubled plus a half, I think. Not my forte. (laughs) It's much better. It is is much better. It's much better. It's much more high interest. Um, We don't just have a bunch of very outdated historical references and uh, old worn down classics anymore. We actually have young adult fiction. We've got graphic novels. We've got middle grade fiction. Things that they want to read. Yes. (laughs) Yes. I was thinking the other day about, you know, when you go to a bookstore, you have all the regular sections of books, Mm -hmm. but then you also have this special section in the front, which is picks from people who work here. Yes. And I was wondering if we should institute something like that, where like it has like the teachers pick a book of that month. And they just put it like in that section and have kids really like a kid is really into a teacher they're like much more likely to pick up that book and read it. I am nerding out so hard right now. That is an amazing idea. Yes, absolutely. Um, and it would be fun to pick out the books. Absolutely. Um, I definitely would love to partner with you on that. Um, I think I can get some space in our social homework cafe where we can display it because I know part of the plan is to get rid of some of the very ugly cubbies mm-hmm. and we can turn the display cool. into the book of the month. So I have to say that the one of the perks at working at a school this size is that you just saw something, a decision being made that we're going to execute an idea. and. If you're working at a larger institution, you would have to run that through so many loopholes. <laughs> whereas if it's small enough, you can just say like, hey, do you want to do this? Let's do it. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if we need to get approval, all we're going to have to do is yeah. talk to our homework cafe director who's going to say, absolutely go for it. Yes. That was my best Jeff voice. Yes. It was pitch perfect. <laughs> um, so it seems like the main idea that you want to get through in your classes is that reading is important and it's not necessarily important that it has to be a certain type of reading or a certain caliber Um, and I think back to when I was a student in high school I always wanted to be that student who was like I'm reading the really important hard to read novels that are I can't I physically cannot get myself to read Mm -hmm. Um, and instead I'm just reading a bunch of like biographies about Nirvana and I'm just nerding out on music the whole time. What do you think about that? Like how do you get kids to read who don't like to read? So I don't know if you've been in my office recently but if you come in you will notice I have a giant stack of magazines on my floor. 
I have everything from Sports Illustrated to Good Housekeeping to uh, I think I have one issue of Poets and Writers. That was that was mine. I, I admit it. But I am at the point we have. Unfortunately, the education system in this country has done such a disservice to our students because it's a whole cycle. I'm going to recommend now, like I highly recommend you read the Read Aside book. If you want to borrow it from me, you're welcome to borrow it. Um, For all of you out there listening in podcast land, Read Aside by Kelly Gallagher. It is light changing um you spell it like homicide it's r-e-a-d-i-c-i-d-e read aside and it's all about how we can combat this cycle that we've and by the way i don't get any money from uh promoting that book it's all (laughs) just nerd power right here (laughs) But it's one of those things where um, we've created a cycle of all of this standardized testing that goes on in public school and so little, um, so little emphasis is placed on reading for enjoyment now. It's all critical reading. Let's diagram the hell out of this book. Let's chop it up into tiny pieces and dissect every single piece of information. That is not how you create a lifelong reader. A lifelong reader has a flow. We call it the reading flow. Brock, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Where you're in a book and you're like, okay, I'm going to read this one chapter and then I'm going to go to bed. And then you look up and it's three o'clock in the morning. You have to work at eight and you're like oh oh crap but you were just completely lost in the world and that's what we're looking for is we're looking for people who read and we want to create those people who read readers are leaders and leaders are readers and it all begins with wanting to read i don't care if you read biographies about nirvana that's great. That exposes you to vocabulary. You, When you read, you're exposed to vocabulary and all of these different word acquisitions and all of the different syntax. And you just learn how to become a better writer and a better thinker through all of this reading. I don't care what you read. Read Sports Illustrated. Read a magazine. Read whatever. If you're a parent, read to your children. Just read. You want the activity, well, you want whatever the activity it is, and in this case is reading, you want it to be energizing. You don't want to feel like you should do something. And should is kind of in part in that vocabulary mm-hmm. that we're not a huge fan of um, because it's a disempowering word. Yes. Um, but the main idea is that you want to, whatever it is, you want it to be energizing and interesting. Mm-hmm. And that's when you find that flow of reading that you lose track of time and you really just get lost. You'd stop seeing the words individually and it's just a flow. Mm-hmm. You, see, you see the actions play out in your head as you read. Yeah. Here's a question for you. Something that I struggle with is attention span with anything and the the types of books that I gravitate towards now as opposed to maybe 20 or 15 years ago are um, shorter in format. So like right now, Mm -hmm. as opposed to when I was a little younger, I can really only do books that come in these segments. I'm kind of thinking of like David Sedaris um, Mm -hmm. or any books where it is chunked. It's not one long story Mm -hmm. that is broken into bits. How do you, have you noticed like any changes in your your own reading patterns since you were a student as to now? I've actually started reading more now as an adult. Um, unfortunately, I 
see myself as a victim of Redicide because I was I went to that small town high school. So much emphasis was placed on our test scores. It didn't matter if we we at sixth grade, we stopped going to the library. If you wanted to go to the library, you had to go on your own time. Hmm. And I stopped reading. You know, I was a voracious reader when I was a younger a, a child. Um, we had the 600 minute free Six Flag ticket thing. Every year of elementary school, I had a free ticket to Six Flags. Wow. Because I just, I was a reader. Um, and I read for fun. And that was just what I loved. If my parents wanted to punish me, they had they didn't ground me from TV. They grounded me from my books. <laughs> <laughs> when the school started placing less emphasis on it, I fell off. And I credit the Twilight series. Okay. For, All right. Let's for, give some credit where credit is due. Absolutely. Um, I credit the Twilight series for getting me back into reading. Um, and, you know... Stephanie Myers and Twilight get a lot of hate. But I think it's I don't think it's it's due because ultimately you're getting kids to read. Yes, the subject matter is corny. The vampires are glittery. Who cares? (laughs) They're reading. I think I prefer my vampires glittery as opposed to too dark, you know? And your idea of like cross-curricular reading. What is the most, or what what's an example of an unlikely thing that you have given a student to read or that you yourself read that's not in your content area? Unfortunately, since I am an English teacher, I could argue that every book ever is in my content area. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like for pleasure, I read zombie. I read about zombies. I love zombies. Okay. I'm obsessed with zombies. Uh, the podcast that I'm listening to right now is actually audio theater about zombies. Oh, okay. Um, but as far as like reading outside of what you normally do, like for example, if you're in a math class, you could read you could use that time to read a biography about a mathematician. You could read something dealing with engineering. You could read in science. Um, we have forensic sciences here. Mm-hmm. Tell me why we're not having them read true crime novels. That's very true. Every kid I've had, almost every kid I've had, just is obsessed with true crime. Why are we not having them read? Um, One of the novels that I have students read is In Cold Blood. It was, it's considered one of the first nonfiction novels. It's true crime. The kids are into it. Why are we not capitalizing on this? Throw it in there. Absolutely. Um, If you want to go straight fiction, I could see if you were doing an, like an art history class, have them read The Da Vinci Code. Because Have you read it? I've not read it. It's very good. Very good. Um, it goes into a lot of, it could be very controversial, so we may have to, we would have to be careful with it, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of art history in that book. We don't have to read about the Civil War while we're studying the Civil War. So what do you mean by that? So... If we're studying the American Civil War, why don't we read something about one of the civil wars that have taken place in post-colonial Africa? Oh, that's a good point. So, discussing what a civil war is. Yes. It's not just an American phenomenon. Exactly. A civil war is a -hmm. war that was within a country that are two opposing forces. And it's not important that it's in America Mm -hmm. that is happening. Yes. It happens everywhere throughout time. Exactly. Exactly. Um, You can read a piece of literature set in a time period that you're studying in history. Um, You can read, say, same with art history. Hey, we're going to look at 
about the romantic movement in Italy. And here's a book that deals with that period. So one of the most popular and most successful art critics Mm -hmm. of the last 20, 30 years is this guy, Jerry Saltz. And I follow him on Instagram. (laughs) And um, he's not everybody's favorite cup of tea, but he compared to maybe um, your more like your modernist uh, art critics like Clement Greenberg are a little stuffier. And that just kind of comes with the territory of what art what critic art, isn't. <laughs> yeah, what art is was like back then. Of course. As to now. And, and now Jerry Saltz, this contemporary art guy, is um, he writes in New York Magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, very approachable language. Mm-hmm. And people have really connected to the way that he writes. And I give students. You know, even though it's about contemporary art, which is sometimes this like hard to approach thing, he writes about art and art making and the way that artists should like think about things mm-hmm. in this really duh kind of a way. Yeah. The problem is like we place some of these expectations on ourselves. As adults, we do it too. Reading, I compare it to running a marathon. Okay. Do I expect my toddler to go out and run 26 miles? Probably not. Probably not. No. I'm working on creating my own, my personal classroom library, um, bringing in books that I pick up, books that I love to read, and just keeping them in my classroom. That's a good idea. Because it's one of those things of you want them to be exposed. Yeah. If they're not exposed to books, they're not ever going to see them pick it up. I also have a little note on my board as to what Sam reading. And I list the books that I'm reading right now. I'm only reading one, but it's okay. So what's what's one thing that teachers can do to that's a kind of layup for them to be able to insert more reading into their curriculum? So I'm going to highly recommend articles of the week. Okay. Um, That's probably the easiest thing to do. It is the most accessible thing to do. If you teach um, secondary English classes, they're already there on Kelly Gallagher's website. If you don't, there is a website called Newzella. It's N-E-W-S-E-L-A. I also call it News E-L-A. I don't know what it's how to pronounce it. It's not important. But they have a lot of great articles that are written for students. And you can adjust the Lexile level of them. Um, And it's all current events. Um, You can pick historical things. You can pick things to do with art. You can pick things to do with music, science, technology, whatever. If you want an article of the week, jump on Newzella. Find yourself an article that deals loosely with your curriculum. I say if you're if you teach science, I read an article on there about a girl who started her own slime business and making slime. That's science, isn't it? Yeah. Who says it has to be boring? If I know one thing about kids is that they love slime. Yes, they do. In 2019, they love slime. In 1999, they love slime. All the years, they love slime. Who didn't (laughs) love slime? Who doesn't love slime? I'm, I'm an adult. I love slime. Sam, thank you so much for sitting down with me today and discussing a little bit about you and reading in the classroom. Um, Where can people find you these days? So I am basically all over social media, um, but I tend to gravitate toward Instagram. You can find me. My name is Chunky Still Funky. Best name. (laughs) Absolutely. Um... 
I post on there a lot about my dog, my husband, body positivity, uh, and how much I love my job. So it's a very positive, happy place. But you're welcome to follow me on Instagram. If you have any questions, please feel free to email me. Uh, you can email my personal mail. It's S-A-K-R-A-G-E 489 at gmail.com. Awesome. You can follow Summer League at Summer League HTX on Instagram. Um, thanks to Sam again, and thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next week with a brand new teacher with a brand new topic. We'll see you then. Bye.